For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, Charles Spurgeon. He said, get to Christ somehow, anyhow, for if you get to him, you shall live. It is not the greatness nor the perfection of your faith. It is his greatness and his perfection, which is to be depended on. Mm. Well said. And welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer, and this is my lovely wife, Nikki. Hello. And... If you're new to the show, uh, welcome in. We're happy to have you here. The idea of our show, don't let the name fool you, very religious, very Christian. Uh, we do our best to help Christians live a life that's pleasing to God in this crazy secular world that we find ourselves in. And we do that by looking at the news of the week and Bible and spiritual leaders from the past and the present, whatever we can do to help each other out. So. And if you aren't new and you've been with us for a while, you might know that it looks different um, if you're watching on the video. If you're listening on the podcast, you just got to take our word for it. Um, so we're trying to make the best use of our dinky little studio space that we can. And we've gotten most of the way through kind of reorganizing in here. We haven't gotten all the way. So, you know, it may look slightly different than this, but really we needed new chairs. That was like the big thing. Uh, when this podcast was only 20 minutes long, when we first started, didn't really matter. We were sitting on a fireplace, really doing the podcast. Yeah. Was that the last place we were in our old house? Yeah. And we were in the garage. We were, <laughs> but now we're here and we're doing an hour and a half hour, 45 minute episodes and the chairs we had, it just was really unenjoyable. So they looked nice, but yeah, they weren't for long term. They were not. So we went and found these chairs, praise God, at Goodwill. Yeah. Very comfortable, Spencer very cheap. And so we're trying to make the, the studio just a little more enjoyable for the podcast. So um, that's why it looks different. But um, the show's not going to be different. So we're still going to be doing what we do. Um, you know, and today we're going to be taking a look, uh, taking a look at the news um, that's happened in the last week, like we always do. But Rather than diving into a specific Bible topic, uh, what we wanted to do was take a look at, well, we picked Charles and Susie Spurgeon, and we're going to discuss why we chose them um, when we get into our Bible topic portion, but where we're talking about them after the news. So we'll explain mm -hmm. why we picked them and what we're going to do with this going forward. Um, so no real specific Bible topic, but we are going to speak about um, you know, kind of bios on Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Um, but before we get to all of that, is there anything you would like to say? Um, yeah, I think we should lift up my friend. Um, 
I didn't know she was dealing with, uh, I guess she, she called it walking pneumonia. I guess it's something that's been lingering for the past month. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of concerning for uh, pneumonia to be lingering. And she's on antibiotics, probably not the first time, but, yeah, just lift um, my friend up um, in prayer for healing. And, um, yeah, and Spencer's got a praise report. And talk about your new jail ministry experience. Yeah, so praise report. You guys know that I've been doing the jail ministry, the Bible studies thing for the last few months. And I thought I was covering for a friend. I did this two weeks ago on a Wednesday. Thought I was covering for him again this week. And, you know, spent a lot of time prepared what I thought was a great little sermon there. And uh, got up there. The chaplain's normally not there. The jail has a chaplain, but he was in and I was talking to him and he's like, cool, man, what are you doing here? I was like, oh, I'm getting ready to go do this Bible study. And he's like, nope, we already got somebody to fill that spot. He's already on his way. And he was like, well, since you're here, we've got a backlog of guys that want to do one-on-ones um, for, you know, kind of church ministry one-on-ones. And he's like, if you're here, if you don't mind, you know, we'll bring some of those guys up if you want to meet with them. And I've never done the one-on-ones before. So I was like, yeah, this would be a neat opportunity. So got to go and sit down with three guys um, and just, you know, one-on-one, you know, they're all different situations, but it was really nice just to sort of, you know, a lot of times guys just want to open up, talk to somebody, you know, one of them kind of just wanted a request from me, you know, which, which is fine, whatever they're, they're in jail, they got needs and stuff. And but, you know, just got to share stories with them, share some verses, listen to them. Um, I think so often in those type of situations, especially when you're in like a correctional facility, not a lot of people are spending their time listening to you. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just kind of dealing with you and shuffling you, which I don't blame them, right? They got a lot of people. But I think, you know, people just want to get stuff off their chest. And then you get a chance to sort of sit down, pray with them. So it was really neat, you know, it was happy that God sort of diverted me that way. Wasn't something I was expecting to do, but turned out to be really beneficial. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the last praise report slash continue to pray is the judge. We guys, we talked to you, I think two weeks ago about a judge in Ohio had passed a temporary restraining order on the Air Force against the COVID vaccine mandate, kicking people out and punishing them. And that same judge has just upheld that ruling and passed a preliminary injunction against the Air Force, which is more of a long-term sort of hold on separations and punishment for people that filed religious accommodations. So I don't really know all that it entails other than it basically has to go to, you know, I think a circuit court of appeals to really be hashed out. So, you know, that's a blessing because it buys us more time, right, for this stuff to get sorted out. But it also continue, uh, continues to need prayers that rulings would bend in the favor of those seeking religious accommodations, mm-hmm. of which I am one. So I'm really hoping that it works out that way. So just thank you for your prayers. Please continue to pray. Um, but as always, um, I want to make sure that we get our cardinal plug in here. Team Cardinal, Cardinal Contingency Solutions. If you guys are familiar, um, last week I talked to you about this youth group from Seventh-day Adventist Church that 
sort of found themselves in the middle of a collapsing country in Panama. And, you know, they were kind of stuck in a really hairy situation. And I thought, you know, this is kind of a good, um, good talking point for Cardinal, because this is what they specialize in. This is what they deal with on a daily basis with the United States military. And if they're capable of, you know, drawing up plans and developing game plans for the U.S. military and those members to get out of these sticky situations, they can do the same thing for you. And in fact, it's what they offer to do. And even more so than just a church group or, you know, missions team. If you are going on a trip overseas somewhere, you never know what's going to happen. Cardinal, they can take care of you on an individual basis, large scale team basis. They can get your needs covered. So if that sounds like something you may be doing, consider reaching out to Cardinal. Um, Links will be in the show notes. They will be able to help you. That I promise. And then, of course, we are proud members of the Christian podcast community. And I pulled this up. I wanted to highlight Apologetics Live. I think I've talked about this show before. And unfortunately, the show is always going on while we're recording this episode. So we never actually get a chance to go in there and probably be embarrassed about our theology because they're probably all much smarter than we are. (laughs) But it's just a show where they bring in only Christian podcast community members and they just discuss certain topics. I think this week they're talking about heaven and hell. What does the Bible say? Where do we stand? What are our beliefs on heaven and hell? Um, They've talked about, you know, all sorts of different topics. I think, what was the one I was thinking of that we listened to? I think it was, uh, do babies go to heaven? You brought that up before. Yeah, yeah. they discussed that one, which was really cool to listen to. So that's just one of, you know, 60 different podcasts that they have on there. All good, all godly. So go check out Christian Podcast Community, and I'm sure you will like it. All right. But you guys know what time it is. Time to gird up your loins, as the psalmist would say, I think. I'm sure that's in the psalm somewhere. Gird your loins (laughs) and prepare yourself as we get ready to take our weekly trek through the valley of the shadow of death and take a look at the news of the week. And this first story is a doozy. Um, So I'm sure you guys may have heard of this by now. Do you want to read that headline, honey? NYPD. Preacher, wife, robbed of $1 million in jewelry during sermon. Yep. And then if you want to just go over these two paragraphs. A preacher known for his close friendship with New York City's mayor was robbed of more than $1 million worth of jewelry Sunday by armed bandits who crashed his Brooklyn church service, just as he was sermonizing about keeping faith in the face of great adversity, police said. Bishop Lamore Miller Whitehead, who embraces his flashy lifestyle, and can often be seen driving around the Big Apple in his Rolls Royce, was delivering a sermon at his Leaders of Tomorrow International Ministries when police say three robbers walked in. They showed guns and demanded property from Miller Whitehead and his wife, Asia K. I did not catch that. How do you pronounce that name? Dos Race Whitehead? I don't know. 
Thanks. Yeah. Police <laughs> said. So <sighs> uh, I just want to yeah. highlight this second article here because I read another one. Um, so this article here from the Christian Post. And apparently this uh, Lamar Whitehead went on a Facebook Live interview um, with some apparently fairly well-known Christian Facebook livers. I don't know what they necessarily do. Um, But the interview sort of went sideways. And, you know, you can see from that previous story, and then if you read this article, I didn't watch the interview, but if you read the article, um, this Lamar, Lamar Whitehead, he sort of makes a fool of himself. Um, but he does say down here, if I can see it near the bottom. Uh, yeah, it says it right here. I think. It says, uh, this Lamar Whitehead, he prides himself on being a man of the streets and lists rappers Curtis James Jackson, or 50 Cent, Foxy Brown, and 6ix9ine among people he has led to Jesus. Um, so, you know, obviously, it seems like a pretty easy story to mock. Um, and I guess yeah. that's a certain way you could take it. I'm sure a lot of people have already, but my question when I saw this story, and it's what me and Nikki sort of talked about when we were discussing the story is like, and cause this isn't the only place, but like when did America in these churches just sort of decide to do away with the first Timothy three and the Titus one sort of standard for church leadership. Um, and I think this is a serious question. You know, it's a question that I have and obviously every situation is different. Right. Um, but being in jail, like, I don't know. Um, I sort of, you hear about it a lot, people, and especially me, I'm in jail. So I hear these stories of people that are like, oh, well, you know, I was in jail and I found faith and got out into this, pro- you know, this um, home or whatever, baptized. And within, you know, a couple months, I was preaching, leading ministries. And I've heard it enough. And then you see this guy, Lamore Whitehead or whatever, he talks about he was in jail for six years. Now he's leading a church. And again, every situation is different. We have um, at least one gentleman on the Christian podcast community who is a former convict turned pastor. So every situation is different. And yeah. I don't know their specific situation. Um, but does my question was, does cool backstory trump scriptural standard? And I feel like that's what we're trying to go for. Um, yeah, I think so. I think the fact that he has that kind of past, more people can relate to him, but that doesn't mean that he's qualified to be a preacher. He can still lead people to Christ, but I don't think just from his lifestyle alone, I don't think he's shepherding the church properly because they're learning from him how to walk the straight and narrow. And it sends a wrong message, his lifestyle, um, you know, the cars, like he's, he's, he's tempting people to be covetous, not that he's intentionally 
doing that, but you have to be where... Well, you don't know that. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily even say... Because he's not... Um, I mean, he's a not ashamed of his flashiness. Um, he's yeah. very open about it. Every picture that you see, I went and looked at his church website. Every picture you see, he's got, you know, diamond studded everything. And I think he's even called the bling bling pastor is what they sort of reference him as. Um, and he talked in that article about driving around in this Rolls Royce. And but, he, you know, he does make known. I think I read somewhere. I can't remember which article that. You know, he made some money in real estate and different things like this. So I don't know that it's necessarily church money or whatever it happens yeah. to be. But maybe not. A big problem that I have with this is that he's an embarrassment. Now, again, that could be his fault or it could not be. But um, you even read in this story where he's talking about he led 50 Cent to Christ is what it says. Well, or 50 Cent is quoted in that Christian Post article making fun of the guy. Um, mm. And again, being called the bling bling pastor, what you're known for is being yeah. extravagantly dressed. Um, but then even more so than that, the first Timothy standard, the tightest standard of a preacher is someone who, among many things is well respected, you know, in the community mm -hmm. that is above reproach mm -hmm. are things. Um, so then you get into the whole like, all right, well, you just came out of prison. You know, so does that leave you above reproach in the community? Does that mean that you have a good community. name in the community or, you yeah. know, in the city and amongst the church? And again, every situation is different. But the idea of a first Timothy man is a man who is, you know, obviously very moral, very virtuous, well-tested, seasoned. You know, it talks about not being new in the faith, being yeah. above reproach, um, all these sorts of things. And only, I think when we counted it, only two of the 10 First Timothy requirements were on your basically knowledge base of the scriptures. Everything mm -hmm. else was moral and virtuous. So what is that? a fifth of the qualifications to be a pastor actually have to do with how well do you understand the word of God? People just look to someone who um, can attract a crowd and do they speak well? Are they entertaining too? Yeah. That's the qualifications these days. It really is. They just want someone up on the stage to attract a crowd. That's it. Well, in, you know, and I get to, we fall into this place where like, well, if you want to reach someone from this community, you need somebody like that person, which maybe there's some um, argument for that. I'm not going to discount it, but the Bible doesn't say here's the first Timothy, you know, standard for a pastor, unless you're in the inner city, then throw all that out and just go find somebody who can relate to somebody from the inner city. It doesn't say that, right? The standard is the standard, but we just sort of do away with it. Because we're like, well, he can reach those that we're trying to reach. You know, and it's almost like you're just kind of saying, God really didn't think this all the way through, or else he would have made some caveats mm -hmm. for different situations. And again, I may be wrong on this. We, you know, want to hear from you guys, not trying to deride this person necessarily. But I think we all have seen different situations like this, yeah. where, 
you it's see just, somebody who's a pastor and you're like, and you hear their backstory and you might even be like, wow, that's great. Right. But then if you look at him and like, has he got a long track record of being moral and virtuous tested mm-hmm. and proven, or did he sort of just come to faith and he's got this cool flashy story that can connect with a lot of people. Those are different things. And, you know, what it makes me think of is for the pastor himself, because if you're a pastor, you should be looking at first Timothy and saying, yeah, am I this man? And if you look at that and you say, no, but you continue on to try to be a pastor, to me, it just seems like a pride issue. I want to be a pastor. So no, I'm not qualified based on God's word. But yeah, well, he made that comment later in that article. I don't know which one it was, you know, him being questioned why he lives so lavishly. And he just said something like, um, I live the way God set it up for me. And you're like, yeah, you're blessed with money, like to give, not to keep up treasures for yourself. So that's red flag on its own, if that's the way he responded. I just think there's a lot of red flags in it. Like you read it and immediately it's negative in your mind. Right. And my immediate response to it is, like you said, very negative. But again, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt in a sense that I don't know the man. All I know are these two stories, which obviously highlight him in a very negative way. So I don't know him a lot. This is just more of a broader, and it, you know, it crosses all, you know, racial bounds, all gender bounds. I mean, we've all seen different people in different times that you're like, why are they in the position that they're in? You know, especially when it comes to church leadership. So this one just jumped out to me because I was like, how is a dude that's just sort of like fresh out? Not that he's fresh out of jail. He's been out of jail. But like, you've got this criminal past. You've got this extravagant lifestyle that people are mocking and identifying you with this extravagant lifestyle rather than as a child of God. Mm-hmm. And how does that line up with being the standard for what the apostles have called? Well, when we to get be? into our discussion, let's compare him to Spurgeon. Yeah. Let's compare <laughs> no, him to... I can't. We can't compare like hardly anybody to Spurgeon. <laughs> well, no. And again, that's why we're saying there are different situations. Everything's different. You know, you can't yeah. just blanket statement everybody. Um, but I don't know. I think it's a good question. I think it's good for us to to look at that and then look at the people that are in charge of us, right? The the leaders in our churches and stuff, because if not, we're liable to be like, oh yeah, this guy can, you know, I mean, this is why every youth pastor in America, it seems like is just whatever kid that's fresh out of college that still knows how to play Fortnite. They're like youth pastor, you can relate <laughs> to the kids. And you're like, is the youth pastor held to some different standard of, they have to have, some worldly yeah you know credentials you know so (laughs) just i don't know it makes me ponder so the next story that we have here though um this one as well comes from the christian post and uh do you want to read this headline honey is the surprising roots of gender madness yeah and This is a really good, but very brief article that sort of discusses how we got to this point of really gender insanity um, that we currently kind of reside in. But one paragraph that stuck out to me, if I can find it here, um, if you want to read it, honey, 
it says right here. It says, so how did we get to the point where a man identifying as a woman was even permitted to compete, having been told for generations that it's illegal to discriminate Society has lost the ability to discriminate. We've been blindsided by a gender-blind ideology. Worst of all, even in churches, where among many today, the gender frog is well and truly cooked. Yeah, and if you read the whole article, you'll get the, uh, the frog analogy there. But he also yeah. makes a great statement in this article where he says, in matters of gender, whether in individuals or church, God doesn't gift what he prohibits. Now he's kind of talking a little bit about, you know, women being um, pastors, pastors and, you know, overseeing men in the church and stuff like that. That's a good way to put that. I liked that. It's a good one. But the reason I wanted to bring this up, I just saw this article. I went, my chance, (laughs) because I'm opposed to inclusion in the modern sense of the word. And I've just wanted to say that because it feels good to get it off my chest. But you know, Christianity and really everything that is exclusive for the most part has value. And Christianity is supposed to be exclusive, right? But mm-hmm. inclusion in the modern sense strips any notion of value away. You know, inclusion naturally exists in areas where it needs to exist, but that isn't good enough for Satan, the destroyer, and his children. So, you know, inclusion, and you can throw diversity into that as well. It sort of needs to exist specifically in the places where it doesn't fit in modern America. Mm-hmm. And we saw this, you know, if you're aware, I think last year in the NFL, they did this. They now have quotas for hiring like women in minority coaches, which might seem small, but you're like, women don't play football. Hmm. So why do they need to coach it? Ah, well, for inclusion's sake, of course. We see this in my realm, right? In the military or even in law enforcement. Women must be frontline warfighters. You know, sure, men are bigger, faster, stronger, more aggressive. But, you know, for the sake of inclusion, women got to be frontline warfighters. Why is inclusion more important than the task? It's more important than success is inclusion. Um, but I mean, this story highlights Leah Thomas quite a bit, but you know, you see this here, right? We're even to the point now where we need men in women's sports just to go out there and crush the competition for inclusion's sake, you know, in this world, like it just, it infects everything, this inclusion, but it's even damaging the church. Um, you know, and we've talked about this before. We've got churches now where it's like, We're just open to everyone. Mm -hmm. We want all forms of sin and debauchery in our church. Inclusion and and tolerance. Inclusion and tolerance, even to the point where a lot of our churches are designed specifically for the singular purpose of having the sinners in there. Mm -hmm. It's like they're neglecting the faithful for the sake of being inclusive to the sinner. Um, You know, it's like, hey, if you, whatever, if you need the help and inclusion go have an unqualified woman as a pastor you know because there's some inclusion they kind of like doing the whole um privileged you've you've been a privileged christian for a while we need to open the door to all these other people 
that mentality right. going on that's yeah. in the church. And we're going to talk about that next week with the Christian nationalism stuff. Um, you know, we've talked about this. We did an episode on racializing Christianity months ago. And it's yeah, we're going to definitely see that with, you know, ah, you have, you know, too many white people in your pastorate. You need to get some women. You need to get some minorities in there. Um, but yeah, you know, hey, get some women in your pastors, even if you don't agree with women being your pastors for inclusion's sake, you need it. If that isn't good enough, you can go find a Lamar Whitehead. You can get some gangbangers to be your pastor. That's inclusion, <laughs> right? That's diversity. You know, maybe you're like, ah, we got this 19 year old in our church and he seems really charismatic. Let's make him a pastor too, right? He can reach the youth. Just because someone has some gifts does not qualify them to be a teacher in a certain area. No, but then yeah. it's even worse, right? Like if you're the Episcopalian church and your membership is sliding, oh, let's just make a transgendered woman be our pastor or something, you know? We'll just reach that market. We'll be God. inclusive of everybody, right? Inclusion will win the day is the motto. Um, so I've just wanted to make this point for some time. I don't know why, because it's really bugged me. Maybe because inclusion is everywhere in the world that I operate in. Um, but I stand against inclusion just for the sake of inclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't care for diversity just for the sake of diversity. Like I love everyone. God loves everyone, you know, but if my church that I go to is 90% white, I'm okay with that. Right. And if your church is 90% black, I'm okay with that. You know, as long as we're both preaching the same God, we're both preaching to love the brethren. I'm good. Go and enjoy God in the mm -hmm. church that you're going to. I don't need you to be like, well, how many Asian Americans do you got in there? Oh, let's go and find some. And then we can really worship God in an inclusive environment. I don't care, right? Like, just for the sake of inclusion, it doesn't make a big difference to me. Right. Um, because again, Christianity is, or is, is exclusive, and it's even described that way by our Lord. You know, he says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to, leads to life. Mm -hmm. And those who find it are few, right? Yeah. Um, it might be open to all, right? But it's in exclusive. It's very hard to get into. Uh, Matthew 7, 14. So I just had to get it off my chest. It's not any sort of bigoted, racist stance. It's just where inclusion and diversity is forced on you. For no other reason than inclusion and diversity, I'm kind of over it. Oh gosh, I know. I don't know. Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, I'm okay if there's just something that only women can do. That's all right. I'm like, whatever. I don't know. That's I mean, fine. I it just used to be the days where everybody got a trophy for playing, but now it's like it's not good enough. You yeah, to, you don't just get a trophy anymore. You get to go out there and be. Uh, I don't know. Just get to be involved in That's the That's really not that fair when need to what be they're in. doing now. Now everybody doesn't get a trophy because they're so far down, you know, in competitiveness and, you know, the men being so much stronger and faster. It isn't an equal playing field at all. No, it's just crazy. <laughs> it just, it irritates me. You know, I think, you know, I remembered sitting in, hearing not very long ago, inclusion is lethality. And I thought, no, <laughs> lethality is lethality, right? We're talking about the military, but no, inclusion, that's what is going to, so 
I've just had my fill. I've wanted to say it for a long time. I hope I don't offend anybody. I don't hate anybody. If you want to be a part of something, I hope you're a part of it, just as long as you're not just being shoved in there for the sake of being there. I'm a, I prefer, what is it, meritocracy, right? Um, people that should be there based on their work ethic, their uh, yeah. ability to do the job. Their ability. I, I saw one of the comments at the end of that article. I might get it wrong. The army was like, be all that you can be. Yeah, that was the old army slogan. Be all that you can be. Yeah. Whatever you're capable of, not just like, I'm going to be whatever I want to be because yes. that's what I want to do. And they're like, inclusion. No, what can you do, right? Yes. Um, you know, if you never played football a day in your life, you don't need to be a football coach. That's okay. It's not racist <laughs> or sexist to say, you don't know football. You never really played it. Let's go and hire a guy who has played football his whole life. That makes more sense, right? So just had to get that off my chest. Last news story here. So this one comes from The Blaze. And if you want to read this headline, honey. Planned Parenthood Clinic to open in high school if school board approves deal. Opponent says board members should be ashamed for considering it. Mm. Yes. Want to read those? A Planned Parenthood clinic will open in a Southern California high school if a local school board approves the deal, Fox News reported. The Norwalk La Mirada yeah. uh, Unified School District's board will vote during its Monday meeting on allowing Planned Parenthood Los Angeles to open and operate a clinic at John Glenn High School in Norwalk. The cable network said. Yep. Wow. I know when I read that, I was like, all right, we can have everything in the schools. Let's, let's have some, you know, ministry, have some pastors in there. And you can't have that can white have, nationalism up, or no. Christian nationalism up <laughs> in the school. So, well, you can have your, your medical help. You need, you know, well, we suggest spiritual. you have everything in your school except your children. So, you know, we haven't implored you guys on here in quite a long time to get your children out of public school. Um, so here you go. <laughs> this is another opportunity for us to tell you, homeschool your kids. Get them Gosh. out of these public uh, education institutions, these schools, if you will. Public education. Like, think how sadistic this is. Like, I think satanic is a better word. This is, in my opinion, quite satanic. Yeah. So now you have little Susie who can go and get that abortion pill in between classes and she'll still make sure she isn't late to her science class where she can go and learn that she's just a random clump of cells and chemical processes that evolved from a fish. Um, so Gosh. great. There's your public education for young Susie, but you'll be like, you know what? She's prepared for this modern world because she socialized. And what's yeah. more important than a child socializing? But we're always told. I don't want my kids socializing with this world. <laughs> no, it's satanic. It's horrific. Um, Gosh. The article goes on to state, I think, let me see right here. Um, it says, in addition, the proposed agreement states that while the clinic will encourage students to involve their families in decision making on mm -hmm. reproductive health, minors can get services without parental consent or notification under California law. And then 
The good old California law. Says just a little further down. If I can find it. I can find it. It says, uh, maybe it's down here. Yeah, right here. It says the Los Angeles chapter in 2019 said it was opening 50 new clinics in area high schools to provide healthcare services, <laughs> education, parent resources, and support to students on campuses. And adding that it reportedly cost Los Angeles County $10 million to do this. So, you know, the, the argument that you'll generally hear, and we may have been guilty of this in the past for telling you guys this, is that, hey, get out to your school board meetings, right? Go and give them a good what for, you know, let them hear it. Or, hey, maybe you need to go run for the school board so you can make some changes. Um, no. Stop some changes. Yeah, I think that time has long passed. Um, I think you need to get your kids out of public school. And I think you need to do it ASAP, you know. Because they don't care, you know, especially in California, but not only in California, right? They're doing this. You know, I would imagine this is going to come. You can already imagine New York. This is going to be happening anytime now. Washington, Oregon, um, the probably entire Northeast. This is going to be coming to. So as long as you continue to send your children to these schools, your word doesn't really mean anything, right? Because you're just barking and they'll just ignore you because. You're going to continue to send your kids yeah. to these schools, and sure, you're upset, you but that doesn't really do anything. By sending your kids there, like it's yeah. I mean, what is it? Uh, it's like actions speak louder than words. Yeah, it's like well, you agree with us. Like you're giving us your most precious treasure. Like, well, I guess that's the question, right? Is it your most precious treasure? Education, or is that comfortable is lifestyle not more important than their spiritual condition than morality why are we putting education and most of the things they learn in school they don't matter the essentials you can homeschool the essentials well and let me also make the point that our schooling stinks it's been backsliding on the global scale for years and years like our schooling keeps getting worse yet it keeps getting more expensive so your kids aren't even getting a good education anymore so I don't know what the fear is, but I think it's a time for choosing. And that's why we bring this up. You know, it's comfort, lifestyle, it's money, convenience too. or is it family and faith? Um, you know, because Satan's aware that he's sort of taken a loss recently, right? At least in this country, in the child murdering front. Um, so he's not just going to stop and go, oh, I guess I just took a loss there. No more killing babies. Nah, he's going to work, right? And he's working on the next generation of kids. So now here's the next evolution of that. Sure, there's a Planned Parenthood two blocks over from your high school. Not good enough. We're going to get that Planned Parenthood right inside the school. We're going to make it as easy as possible to get these kids, these young boys and girls, sort of conditioned into a lifestyle of, I mean, because with abortion comes sexual immorality. They're sort of married at the hip. Sexual immorality death, murder, you know, no respect for life, selfishness, all these sorts of things are going to be ingrained from a very early age. And don't worry, they won't even burden the parents with telling them. You can just come home from work, pick your feet up with a glass of wine, put Netflix on, forget about everything, right? 
I just wonder, like, having a it's Planned crazy. Parenthood in the schools, like, it makes it less private, like, when the students go in there. Is it, like, connected to, like, the nurse's office? I don't get it. Like, how is it? Oh, I'm sure it is. They'll probably claim they have child or doctor-patient privilege of some sort that they can't tell. Although, as sick and perverse as our world is, it's probably going to become a TikTok challenge. Yo, I just went in and got a lunchtime abortion at my high school. Why don't you go and do it too? Um, I don't know. It's perverse. But like I said, we haven't told you guys, we haven't implored you and begged you to get your kids out of public school in a long time. So now we're doing it. Please, for the love of all that is good and holy, take your children out of school. You are smart enough. You are capable enough to homeschool them yourself. I promise you. God gives you grace in the moment. And I can testify to that. <laughs> and if you're a friend, a neighbor, a grandparent, a retiree of some sort, offer to help. Yes. Hey, man, you know what? I like politics. I like American history. Send your send little Bobby over and I'll talk to him about American history every day for 30 minutes. You can meet at the library or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got to make a change, right? You can't just keep walking the wide, wide road to hell. And just hope that somehow God carves another narrow path for you on that wide road, right? Like, you got to step off that road. You got to get on the narrow path. And sadly, our, in so many areas, and there's good public schools, good public school teachers, but yeah. man, you see this more and more. Um, so I just, I encourage everybody, man, get your kids out of school, homeschool them. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people like you. So you can do it. <laughs> So, um, that's really all we got in the news this week. Um, I have been hearing a lot about the Christian nationalism. I've been wanting to discuss it for a while. Uh, just didn't really know how to broach the subject, but we're going to try to tackle that next week if we can. Um, maybe our brains were just too frazzled from the previous three weeks of, it sounds sad saying reading two books in three weeks just broke us, but it did. So um, we're going to try to tackle that one maybe next week. But for our Bible topic this week, we wanted to start something new. And this isn't going to be an every week occurrence. You know, it's just going to be maybe when we have the time or it seems pertinent. But we're going to start trying to give maybe short-ish, although Nikki's here, so nothing ever turns out that short um, with these bios. <laughs> <laughs> She just wrote down word for word the entire book that she read. So we'll just oh. go over that. But uh, no, just these short bios of Christian heroes, as we would call them, yeah. um, because we think this is important. And I think it's commonplace maybe for, you know, we do it. I'm sure you're guilty of this as well. You know, you just kind of assume that other Christians are aware of the heroes that you're aware of. Mm -hmm. Um but it's come to light in our own lives that this really isn't the case. Um, you know, just for us personally, we recently had a lifelong Christian, you know, who basically we were bringing up Martin Luther and they had never heard of Martin Luther. Actually, in fact, I had three, um, one very close lifelong Christian and two others that were sort of new-ish Christians, but never heard of Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. which was stunning to me. I didn't assume that anyone would do that. But again, we assume everyone thinks like we think. And then yeah. Nikki just recently went to a woman's Bible study at a good church. 
and none of those women there had ever heard of Charles Spurgeon. And I was like, my mouth was open. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Charles Spurgeon. So, um, you know, and obviously our list of who we consider, and I say Christian heroes loosely, it could just be, you know, great men and women of the faith from the past or present. But our list is going to look different than your list. You know, we'll probably have some crossover. But that's, again, why we're doing this. And we're going to ask as well that consider sending us a list or just sending us some names. Who do you consider to be someone that Mm -hmm. people should know about? Maybe even more specifically, someone that you think people don't know about, but should, Mm -hmm. Um, because that would be very interesting. We want to learn more about, you know, people that we've never heard of. There are so many great men and women of faith out there. I've learned about so many just in like the past four years. Yeah. And there's so many more (laughs) all over the world, right? That we're sort of blind to. We get stuck in our little bubble of the people that we like. And yes, um, there's so so many like new authors. Oh, like we were talking about, like every church is popping up everywhere with just pastors. Everybody's writing books because that's how they want to make money. It's just that we have so many other pastors like crowding, you know, people sifting through to get to those. Those gems. (laughs) Yeah. No, so that's why we want to do this. And, you know, we have the comment section if you're watching on YouTube. If you're on the podcast, um, consider jumping on one of our social media links, email us, whatever it happens to be. Just tell us who are some great men and women of the faith that you think people should know about. Um, Even if they're just the ones that we all maybe already know about, but they've inspired you a lot. You guys Mm -hmm. know if you've watched this for a long time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I talk about him regularly. Um, In fact, when I was going to do the church group on Wednesday, I put together, I'd mentioned to the guys Dietrich Bonhoeffer and they'd never heard of him. So I was like, oh, I got to tell you about Bonhoeffer. So I put together, you know, a little bio on Bonhoeffer because I thought he's an important person to know about. So, um, yeah, we like learning about men and women of the faith. It's inspiring. Mm-hmm. And Charles and Susie Spurgeon are certainly that way. Um, and that's why we're going to get them kicked off. Or we're going to kick off these bios with them. Mostly because this was the most recent occurrence of someone going, yeah, we never heard of them. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, well, we got to do this. And then because also Nikki just finished reading an awesome book on Susie Spurgeon. Um, well, I brought she, it up in that Bible study and they're like, who's Susie Spurgeon? I was like, oh, Charles Spurgeon's wife. Who? <laughs> I would have flipped the table like Jesus just. Yeah, it shocked me, but I don't know. I think I just assume like all Christians knew who Charles Spurgeon is. Because I have, have known. rightly assumed. No, I'm just kidding. I don't no. know how long I've known of Charles Spurgeon, but definitely come to know more yeah. of his work the past few years i'm more familiar with even you know i'll see a quote and i can just tell oh that's familiar not the words but just the style like you get to know how people speak and write right i mean we do that with the apostles too right this is one of the ways that they you know where they've claimed you know well looks like paul wrote the book of hebrews he writes in the same style you know these sorts of things so um but for this one it's particular we're making it charles and Susie, and i think this is going to be the way that we try to do it wherever we have 
a man of God that's married uh, because mm-hmm. the two are one flesh and any yeah. good man of God that has a wife, you know, they're, they're probably supported and encouraged and they probably reach a greater stature because of the woman, the woman yeah, in their life. So the wife is the helpmate. Yeah. You can't separate the two. Yeah. Especially in Susie's case. Uh, I mean, I didn't know anything about Susie Spurgeon, but great woman of God and yeah. great help even beyond Charles Spurgeon's life as we'll probably touch on here. So um, if this is going to be maybe a little bit jumbled as far as timelines and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but just stick with us. And uh, hopefully it's not too difficult to track. Yeah, I'm not like a great writer, like putting my thoughts. I'm not really organized in my thoughts, but I tried to go along. Um, This is the book, Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles Haddon Spurgeon by Ray Rhodes Jr., We'll have links down in the show notes again, affiliate links if you want to go give the book a read. And not just for women. It's a great book about a great woman of the faith. And uh mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so really I really well written too. It is. I want to read it again. I need to I'm sure somebody at church is gonna to want to read it. I'm not supposed to hold on to this book. But anyway, um I don't know how many months, it was probably three months ago. Um, we were at church and the pastor, our pastor was uh, opening a package. I think it was right after service and he was opening this book, <laughs> opening the package. And, and I was right there and he's like, Oh yeah, that book came. And he's like, Hey, do you want to be the first one to read it? And you can kind of give a, you know, a little rundown of it to the ladies in church and, you know, see what they think of it. And so I didn't mean to be holding on to it so long. I felt bad. I was like, I do not read very fast unless I have like a deadline, like what we were doing the weeks before with the Calvinism books. But yeah, I, I, just, I just have a problem getting started reading. I'm just so distracted and busy that I, once I pick it up though, I'll read several, several pages, but um, I might as well keep holding on to it. I'll probably pass it to you and have you read some of the notes or I'll be talking too much. We'll see. But um. Yeah, so anyway, I'll just begin uh, talking about the beginning of her life. So she was born, not that we know all these areas, but Old Kent Road, London. And she grew up under the reign of Queen Victoria. She says she was seven years old when she um, took the throne and... So their culture was very much affected by that Victorian lifestyle. Uh, The morality and family were an important influence in England. And Susie grew up very educated, and she was part of that upper-middle-class society. And this book tells us she was very well-read and expertly versed in literature, music, art, and language. And she grew up in a time when women were valued in the domestic realm, which would have been nice to grow up in a time like that. Yeah. So although she grew up in London, uh, during her youth, she often visited France to experience the culture there. It's also the educational experiences there. She learned to speak French, and her speech and writing were very much... Um, 
affected by her experiences in both cities. So her life was quite different than that of Charles's upbringing, though. Yeah, you know, Charles, um, or you may have heard him called C.H. Spurgeon at times, um, has mentioned, but as Nikki said, his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, and not as much is known about Susie. Obviously, it's hard to find exact details outside of like that book. You know, they don't really have a Wikipedia page for Susie Spurgeon. But Charles was born June 19th, which I believe is oddly enough Nikki's mother's birthday. Um, How did you know? You I'm a good husband. That? I'm a good husband. But he was born <laughs> June 19th, 1834 in Kelvedon, Essex in England, I believe. And he was born to a family of ministers, you know, both his father and his grandfather. It says they were nonconformist ministers, which I think they were basically just not Anglican. You know, they weren't Church of England folk. Um, and I think you mentioned that he was the eldest child of 17. And yes. nine of his siblings died in infancy. Yeah. So a very large family, a lot of heartbreak in that family, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, Charles, though, he was very intelligent, they say, um, though he never really cared for formal education. You know, they say that he performed well as a child, you know, in his early years of school. Um, but they did also mention that he could appear unlearned. A lot of people said about him, but in reality, he had a great intellect. And if you've read anything by Charles Spurgeon, if you listen to anything by written mm -hmm. by, you know, or preached by Charles Sir Spurgeon, you know, the intellect. Um, but as he got older, he did attend some local classes, but again, never earned a university degree. Um, he just, I think like, yeah, I mean, for me, this hits home. Obviously, I'm trying to go through seminary now, but, you know, he valued learning and he loved to read. That's where most of his, he was self-taught in a lot of respects. Yeah. Um, and it said that his personal library, it eventually uh, exceeded 12,000 volumes. And I believe his entire, I don't know if it was the entire 12,000, but it was purchased. And I think it currently resides at, I may get this wrong, but the Southwestern Baptist Seminary. I think it's in Missouri, but there's a seminary in Missouri, I believe, that purchased Charles Spurgeon's personal library, in wow. a sense. And they have a Spurgeon Center. Um, mm. So that would be cool to go. Yeah, it would be pretty sweet. So Charles Spurgeon, as a child, you know, they mentioned that he struggled in his relationship with God, which is obviously not uncommon with children. Um, but I do think that that is one of the reasons, maybe, um, that kind of led him down the road towards Calvinist faith, which I don't think a lot of people know about Charles Spurgeon. Maybe they do. I didn't know it for a very long time, yeah. um, which I think is a blessing about Kel or about Spurgeon that that part of him because you know whenever you attach a you know a certain Name. faith to somebody yeah. the people that aren't of that exact faith they're just immediately oh I'm not listening to they that won't. guy yeah which is a shame right it everyone is. can benefit from Spurgeon I think and but this quote from Spurgeon sort of highlights I think this difficult relationship with God that led him down this path towards the more Calvinistic side of the faith. He says, I must confess that I never would have been saved if I could have helped it. 
As long as ever I could, I rebelled and revolted and struggled against God. When he would have me to pray, I would not pray. And when I heard and the tear rolled down my cheek, I wiped it away and defied him to melt my soul. But long before I began with Christ, he began with me. So, you know, Charles, his faith, it diverted from that of his parents. Um, And a great story was told of Charles Spurgeon. Um, And I think you can see sort of providence playing out in Charles' life. And it reminded me a lot of Martin Luther's life. You know, the sort of providence that led Luther into the monastery. Yeah. Um, Maybe in a lesser degree happened to Charles Spurgeon. So the shorthand of the story goes that while he was attempting to go to church one Sunday, there was like a really bad snowstorm that sort of diverted him away from going to the church he was going to attend. Um, And it led him to what they call was this small primitive Methodist church. And he heard a sermon that day that basically changed him, changed his heart. And he was quoted as saying, between half past 10 when I entered that chapel and half past 12 when I returned home, what a change had taken place in in me. So that Sunday during the snowstorm, Charles' faith changed um, and his life changed. And as a result, a great man of God was born. Yeah, and Susie, when she got saved um they would normally go to the park street chapel but this day she went to the poultry chapel which was named that i think because they traded or something with poultry there yeah it kind of mentioned it hundreds other things were going on there (laughs) yeah um i typed out from the book instead of reading i don't know why i typed it out i like typing a lot on laptops so I just, I don't know, enjoy it. So I typed it out. <laughs> oh, so yeah, she went to that church and that's when she got saved. Anyway, it says that winter's evening, Pastor S.B., I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's B E R G N E. How would you say it? Burn. Burn. I kind of feel like that. Yeah, okay. Burn, maybe. Okay. He preached from Romans and he says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That was from Romans 10, 8 and 9. And it reads, Despite the waning light of the winter's evening inside the relatively small and dingy chapel, Susie experienced the dawning of the true light in her soul. As the words of the sermon fell on the ears of the congregation, Susie heard something else too. She heard the Lord say, give me thine heart. Like so many in the well-mannered and religious English culture around her, Susie had spent her first 21 years within an assumed Christianity, reading her Bible, praying, and attending church. And as I read that, I just thought, it just gave me hope just for our children, you know, because... I don't want to assume that they're Christians because of these same reasons, even as Susie, like, and she raised their twin boys, uh, Charles and Thomas, to not fall into that assumption either. She wouldn't even let them sing songs of praise to Jesus as Savior until they could truly sing it as 
like for themselves. She didn't even want them singing a lie to Jesus. I was like, wow, <laughs> let's, yeah. I mean, that's good. Cause then if she had conviction, like, don't say he's your savior, you're, you're not even saved yet. You're just. Both of her children are saved. They are. Both of the boys did come to Christ. So yeah. He's yeah. Good. So the first year after Susie's conversion, she went through a lot of spiritual darkness and doubt like of her salvation. And she actually kept her conversion to herself that year. And maybe because of all the doubt that had crept in, but she did look back, you know, later on, she did look back at that moment as her true conversion still. So for Charles from there, you know, he goes to this Methodist church, gets saved. His life is transformed. So he went from there and he began his search um, for a Baptist church. You know, he became a Baptist after that. And, you know, he would attend some ministerial training, but again, he never attended a formal university, never attended a theological school. Um, but he would eventually go on. I believe it says he even started, he preached his first sermon at 16. Um, so again, there goes those wow. outliers, right. That we talked about earlier. I was earlier. thinking about that too. <laughs> um, he was certainly an outlier. Uh, I think an outlier his entire life, but, um, he began preaching at 16, but I think he actually, you know, a few years later became the, the pastor, the lead pastor of this very small Baptist church in a village called water beach. Um, though I think he was still a teen at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Again, though he was a Baptist preacher, right, his faith could be classified as Calvinist, um, though I love the way Spurgeon clarifies his faith. Um, and he has a small little book where I read this in, and he says, if someone were to, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he says, if someone were to ask him, were he a Calvinist, he would say, no, I'm a Christian. But if you asked if I held to the doctrines of grace that Calvin espoused, he would say Yes. I think that's a good way to clarify it. You know, mm -hmm. I don't want to be labeled anything other than a Christian. Right. Just because I happen to believe slightly different. I that, feel the same way. Yeah. Because yeah. it really frustrates me. And again, that's why I'm so grateful maybe that I didn't even really know what his, you know, specific doctrinal beliefs were up until very recently. Yeah. Because it's such a shame that that sort of turns a lot of people off that, well, if we disagree here on this area. I'm not going to listen to anything else really that this person has to say. And boy, I think we lose a lot of really good, um, mm. a lot of good teaching and a lot of good, you know, mentorship and yes. inspiration when we For shut sure. off those people. And um, even throughout Spurgeon's life, and I didn't write this down, but I remember reading it, you know, when he would open his, uh, was it his college? I believe, mm -hmm. I think he hired two, Baptist um, pastors to run it. They weren't Calvinist, but he hired them on because they were men of God. Yeah. You know, he spoke yep. very fondly of John Wesley, mm -hmm. who he would obviously disagree very strongly with um, in the realms of salvation. But I think what I really like about Spurgeon is he would often catch a lot of grief from Armenian Christians because they felt he was too Calvinist, but he was kept he would catch grief from Calvinists because they thought he was too Armenian. And I thought oh <laughs> that's the balance you should probably be striving for. Um, if everybody's mad at you, I guess, because you're not too deep in their camp. 
Yeah. Maybe you're just thinking about things on your own. And again, he was unschooled. He was self-taught by and large. So he preached repentance. He preached the gospel and that's what matters. But yeah, um, the book says that Susie was brought up and it says nonconformity too, like, um, and probably evangelical that they believed more in a free church, not just the, the way the culture's going, you know, following the, the ways of the state. So. Right. And Spurgeon would preach a lot against sort of moral decline um, and sort of the decaying of the church in his time as well. Um, but, you know, Charles Spurgeon is the pastor of this small church. He wouldn't remain in Water Beach long. Um, he was quickly invited to preach in London at New Park Street Chapel is what it was called. And mm-hmm. it says that the congregation was so impressed that they voted to keep him on and preach for an additional six months. And he would remain in London from that point on. Um, and it did say that Spurgeon's time in New Park was not without controversy. Um, they said that he was criticized as a glory hound, or they would criticize, his, criticize him as an egotistical and uneducated buffoon. Um, which yeah. is hard to imagine. And Susie was among one of those, like they're not yet married. You know, she hasn't been introduced to him yet. Um, I'll read from one of the pages on that part. It's just kind of funny. Although she feels guilty about it, you know, later on, but she said, it says though she was unimpressed the first time she heard Charles Spurgeon preach. Susie later, later interpreted that first encounter through the lens of God's sovereign governance She'd been trained to appreciate societal propriety in speech, manner, and dress. Charles violated her preconceived notions of what was appropriate for a polite young man in Victorian times and a preacher at that. Susie found Charles's hair, suit, mannerisms, and his provocative preaching style offensive. Later, reflecting on her earlier sentiments, she wrote, Ah, how little I then thought that my eyes looked on him who was to be my life's beloved. How little I dreamed of the honor God was preparing for me in the near future. It is a mercy that our lives are not left for us to plan, but that our Father chooses for us, else might we sometimes turn away from our best blessings and put from us the choicest and loveliest gifts of His providence. Yeah, so So. it's interesting she mentions best blessings in there, and Mm -hmm. it says the same thing about Charles, because... During those insults and ridicule at New Park Street Chapel, um, roughly, well, really, I guess a short time after he began preaching there, 1855, it says, um, he would meet and baptize this young lady whose name was Susanna Thompson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then one year from that date, roughly one year, mm-hmm. he would go on to marry her, who would become that same woman, right? Susie Spurgeon. So, um, it was a pretty incredible story. This girl who was mocking him, this brute of a preacher and so mm-hmm. unsophisticated and ref- unrefined. Yep. Um, but that was he a was marriage. 19 then. Yeah. A yeah. young man. And yep. it is funny to hear someone say this provocative preacher and you listen <laughs> to Spurgeon, you're like, goodness gracious. I wonder how other people preached then. Like I want to, what was the comparison? just read straight from the King James Bible. That's all they did. 
But she mentions, um, as she looks back on that day, hearing him preach how she was so distracted from the sermon because of the way he dressed. It wasn't what their culture was accustomed to. She mentions how spiritually immature that she was then and how she really, she desperately needed to hear his sermon. You know, he was pleading with sinners to repent. And during this time, she was, that was when she was going through her lack of assurance of salvation. So she was saved um, by the time she first heard him preach. Um, And it wasn't long after this uh, that Charles heard of Susie's doubts in her salvation. They had um, common friends. He would go over um, to, I think it was a relative or friend's house. So they often um, visited with each other at this point. But he heard of her, um, her lack of assurance. And he sent her the book Pilgrim's Progress. And Charles had come to love that book because it had been instrumental in his own understanding of the Christian faith. And so that book helped Susie out of her spiritual depression. It is interesting. They say that Charles read Pilgrim's Progress over a hundred times in his life. Yeah. Just fell in love with the book. <laughs> he did. He loved it. It's funny. Yeah. Like that's what his sons remember about him a lot. So, um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Susie and Charles had twin boys, Charles and Thomas. And Charles was away from home often for ministry. And when, when he was home, he was busy, you know, was responding to letters and stuff. And so Susie took on much of the, the Christian training in the home for their sons. And she taught the Bible to them. She instructed them in the hymns. You know, they sang hymns a lot in their home. And, you know, she insisted on the integrity of the, their Christian profession. Um, and Charles did assure that scripture and prayer permeated the family life. And he taught this to the students at his, his pastor's college, what you mentioned, that yeah. pastor's college. So she offered biblical wisdom to their two sons, even in their adulthood. In one of her letters to Thomas, she writes, I hope that I may live to see you a brave, earnest, devoted Christian man. My highest wish for you is that you may be holy. So even after raising them in Christian ways and in truth, she still was concerned for them as they went out into the world. And I was going to read from a page. I think it was the one where she's warning them. Like she's, I think I read this to you in the car before and I teared up. Probably. <laughs> I was like, oh, I feel the same way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So she's writing, I think she's writing to Thomas. Yeah. As he went out into the world. And if I'm going to crawl, let's hand you the book. Maybe I won't. <laughs> she says, you will be thrown now, my son, into the company of elder boys of the school. Oh, I, I pray you remember what the burden of my heart was the night you took leave of me at Brighton. Lord, keep my boys from the evil that is in the world. You will hear and see and learn things from elder boys that perhaps you never dreamed of before. Oh, my darling, my precious son, turn resolutely away from everything that looks like vice or wickedness and keep yourself pure unto the Lord. Temptation will be very strong sometimes, but cry unto God. 
Cry mightily, and he will deliver you. Something in my heart compels me to say this to you. Today, if you do not feel the force of it now, you will soon. So treasure up my words, darling, and above all, trust Jesus and distrust self. So yeah, I did that. I felt that. I was like, oh, that's definitely a prayer, you know, that we... Something we pray, pray about. And we, we think about and... We talk to our kids about quite often. You're about to go out into this world where we can't protect you anymore. <laughs> Hold close to Jesus. But still, like, she still so. knew even after all that training. You know, when Charles was there a lot, it wasn't just, you know, her on her own a lot. But, you know, it was him who instilled that and guided her to train them. Like, he discipled her as well. Yeah. So. And that's the way a good husband and wife team should work, right? It's the way it works in our family as well. Um, Nikki spends probably as much or if not more time discipling the kids than I do. Um, so definitely a model that inspires us. But so, you know, we talked... Charles was this pastor at New Park Street Chapel. Um, but, you know, New Park, it would just continue to grow during Charles's time. Um, grow to the point that eventually, you know, they would buy new building space and it wasn't enough and they would continue to grow. So they eventually bought an entire new venue and they changed the name to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is still what it's called today and it still stands today. You, you know, can... people have heard that before. Like, that's just a... And you know what's the sad thing is I didn't even realize, again, how shameful my religious background is. I've been to London multiple <sighs> times, and I didn't even think or know about it, and I missed opportunities. I was walking around stupid Trafalgar Square or something dumb when right. I could have been, which again, it's just a church, right? But a cool piece of history. You could have just asked like I whoever pastor we were, whatever church we were at that time. Hey, I'm going here. Is there anything? <laughs> I was a shallow, shallow man. But so uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle still stands today. If you go to London, you can go and see the church that Charles Spurgeon built. Um, again, God is the uh, the one worth, you know, glorifying there, but yes. a cool piece of history, right? It is. Um, so during Spurgeon's ministry at New Park, though, uh, it would change, you know, from when he got there, it was a church that once had 1200 members, it had dwindled all the way down to 232. It was a dying church when Charles got there. Um, by the time he began preaching, and then up until the Metropolitan Tabernacle and his eventual end of ministry, he had over 5000, 5000 mm -hmm. to 6000 members um, that would regularly attend at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So he definitely had a gift for growth as well. And uh, pastoring was just sort of one part of the ministry and impact that Charles Spurgeon had. You know, what I think is neat and really unheard of, especially in the world we live in, Charles Spurgeon's sermons were published every Monday edition of the London Times and the New York Times. Think wow. about that. They would publish Spurgeon's sermons. Um, he would go on to, uh, establish, they said an almshouse and an orphanage. And as Nikki mentioned, he would 
start a pastor's college, which was opened in 1855, and it continues to this day. Um, it's known as Spurgeon's College now, but you can still attend it. Mm-hmm. You know, he would go on to publish a magazine called The Trowel or The Sword and Trowel. Um, he has over 60, or he has 63 volumes they've collected of Spurgeon's sermons that are in print today. And those are things that pastors still study, laymen in the church still study and read those um, and inspired by them. He wrote countless books. Um, he has countless commentaries. I actually just recently bought, you'll see them up here on the screen and they'll be down in the show notes if you want to pick them up for yourself, but there's still new commentaries being printed on Spurgeon. And the ones that I got that you just saw on the screen, they're really cool because they're Spurgeon's commentaries mixed in with his sermons sort of intertwined as a way to sort of open up God's word a little bit. Um, And then he even wrote, you know, devotionals. They say sort of his magnum opus, as they call it, is when he wrote The Treasury of David, which is essentially a commentary of a sense on Mm -hmm. all of the books of the psalm or every book of the psalms. Um, And then even today, like I mentioned, you can still continue to find new works that are being made from Spurgeon's sermons and and all these different things. So. yeah, you know, his writings, his preaching, you know, as Nikki mentioned, he was gone a lot. He traveled and he preached constantly mm-hmm. all the time. Um, I read a funny story that and I'm sure it was in that book or maybe it was, but that Susie, there was at least sometimes or at least one time where when Charles would fall asleep while they were preparing stuff, she would stay awake and write down. He would like preach sermons in his sleep and she would write them down. So when he woke up, she would have like half a sermon that he preached throughout the night, like written out for him, um, which is pretty (laughs) incredible, you know? So, um, but his work has just been a huge blessing and an impact, um, not only for our life, obviously, but so many Christians all around the world, even to this day. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, good people to imitate. Yeah, and then for Susie as well, as Nikki will probably talk about, she really did a lot of that work to get his writings and his books out around the world. Um, that mm-hmm. was one of the missions that she really took on after Charles's death. Um, so yeah. Charles, as we know him, I just thought, you know, you might hear sometimes they call him the Prince of Preachers. It's a nickname. They also affectionately would call him the Last Puritan. So Charles Spurgeon was very heavily influenced by even American Puritans like Jonathan Edwards and these people. He did a lot of reading on them as well. So he was heavily influenced by the people who influenced American Christianity, which is pretty neat. It is neat. Yeah, I'll bring up something interesting about that later near the end. (laughs) But yeah, I want to talk about just some like things that stood out to me um, in this book. So. When they were courting, um, he says he reserved uttering the three powerful words, I love you, until the moment of his proposal of marriage. It says Susie trembled at the experience and was silent for very joy and gladness of the sweet ceremony of betrothal, she declared. Every loving and true heart can fill up the details either from experience or anticipation to me. 
it was a time as solemn as it was sweet. Says Susie, overwhelmed by the experience, felt as if she must immediately seek God in prayer. She quickly exited the quaint garden and retreated to a private upstairs room in her grandfather's house. There she knelt before God and praised and thanked him with happy tears for his great mercy in giving me the love of so good a man. And I don't remember Nikki doing that when I proposed. Let's not get into all of our life. I wasn't Spurgeon. Oh my gosh. Yes. Later, Susie confessed. She confessed to not fully knowing at the time the extent of Charles' greatness. Had she fully grasped what being Mrs. Charles Haddon Spurgeon would entail, she may have been overwhelmed. Yeah. Just thought, wow. That, that just, she immediately had to seek God in prayer. Like, yeah, she was glad. She, you know, said yes, but she had to go thank God, like, immediately. And that was just, that's just amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they were at her grandfather's old house. Uh, I think yeah, he was still alive. Um, yeah, they were in his his yard and his garden when he proposed. She said it wasn't like a beautiful garden. It wasn't any place that someone would imagine like being a romantic place. But that's where he wanted to propose to her. It's like sentimental. Um, let me see. I kind of wrote down notes up here, but I, I have to go to this page and see what what it is i didn't say what i was turning to well you wrote down and i'll just mention it because it's mentioned elsewhere but you know charles suffered with depression Mm -hmm. throughout his life um, which is maybe not something you would assume by such a godly man but he did and um you said in your book that Susie would often read scriptures to him to help him in his dark moments and again that reminded me of martin luther because Martin Luther also suffered from depression his entire life. And wow. there were really dark mm-hmm. moments in his life. I think Martin lost two daughters, um, died at young ages. And in his moments of really dark despair, he would have friends come over and pray over him because mm-hmm. he would say at times he couldn't even pray for himself. So he would mm-hmm. invite other godly men and Charles had Susie to just pray over them until they could get their spirit back in the right place to sort of pray for themselves in a sense. So something for us to consider. They just use scripture for everything. It's like they, like they believed it and applied it more. I'm just, I'm so convicted, but so encouraged in this book. So that song, I told you guys that she wouldn't let them sing that song. And I'm going to read the portion of it here. Um, I don't know if I'm going to read all of that. Don't read all of it. No. She said, dear boys of mine, I have no reason to suppose that you are yet trusting Christ. You will, I hope, in answer to our constant prayers. But till you definitely do, you must not say or sing, I do believe that Jesus died for me. It is just as wrong to sing a lie as to tell one. Then she used to sing it by herself. So this is like her, one of her son's commentary, Thomas. Somehow or other, it did not seem to me, even in those early days, that a chorus should be sung by one voice only. (laughs) Perhaps that little thought helped me um, to long and be able to sing it too. And the Holy Spirit wrought in my heart an earnest craving to be able to sing in the, yeah, it's just a little chorus. I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me. 
that on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. Yeah, and he says, oh, how I long for that. I remember well the, the bright morning when we came to the breakfast table. I climbed upon her seat and put my arms round dear mother's neck. I like to have them there still. And I said to her, dear mother, I really think that I do love Jesus. Thank God. She took me at my word and said to me, I'm so glad to hear it. I believe you do. Then I wanted Sunday night to come that I might be able to sing my loudest chorus. Yeah, they were mm. seeing hymns, you know, with the kids and stuff. And they were uh, so resolute that their kids make sure they knew Jesus, that they would make them stop singing at certain points in hymns. And be like, until you can know for certain that you can say that you love Jesus or you cannot sing this part of the song. So she would sing it alone and then they would pick back up when that <laughs> part was over. But um, it did put yeah. a hunger into her chil children's lives that they wanted to be able to sing that chorus. Yeah. So, which I think is a that's good point. Neat. And maybe that's an extreme for a lot of us that we wouldn't do. But it's something, you know, to consider like when you're going to communion, you know, if your children just sort of take communion because they're with you, you know, maybe stopping that and being like, you know, until you can know in your heart that you believe, you know, that the body was broken, the blood was poured out for you, that you've accepted that, you know, refrain, you know, those sorts of things, you know, definitely, I mean, are things you shouldn't, you shouldn't take communion if you're <laughs> unsure on your salvation, but like, those are good principles that you can instill and then give your kid that longing that yeah, I want to be able to take that mm -hmm. communion. I want to be able to sing that song with my mother. I think that was a part of her upbringing. She probably sang those songs before she was truly converted. And yeah, and she didn't want them to be fooled into, you know, thinking they were when they weren't. Yeah. I think it's important. So um, another part of this book, Susie's acknowledged as, the great sufferer. So she suffered a medical condition that they believed to be from pregnancy or childbirth. Um, so they didn't have any more children after their twins were born. And I don't think she ever became pregnant again. Like she didn't have any miscarriages or anything, but um, that pain she endured from this um, sickness or a complication, whatever it was, um, it had her bedridden um, many days you know, on and off the rest of her life. And she did undergo surgery twice for it, but it, it never healed her. Um, she never got better. So she was in so much pain that she could, she couldn't even travel with Charles anymore. You know, she would go with him when he would travel and um, preach, but she couldn't even go with him at all anymore. So when he was away, they wrote letters uh, daily to one another. They were very, very much in love. Like they were very, um, just verbal in their affection for one another. And in this book, there's several letters they included and it's just, Oh, wow. <laughs> Even after many years, they're just so fond of one another and encouraging one another in the faith, like always reminding each other to look to Jesus and, you know, scriptures. It's really, really beautiful. And so because of her sickness, she often missed Sunday gatherings at church. So uh, Charles ministered to her on Saturday evenings. And she, um, 
quoting from the book, I have notes here, says she remembered her discipleship. She says, in my own sweet home and by my husband's side and by that husband's hand, she said that uh, through Charles, God led her into green pastures and beside the still waters. So when Charles was away, she often spent time in his study and says she was feeding on the same spiritual food that had nourished Charles so well from childhood. So Charles, he was actually overcome with guilt often for being away from Susie and, and from the kids. But even after they were older, they moved out and she was, a well, she wasn't all alone in the house. They did have, you know, people in the home to help take care of her and stuff. But um, she never made him feel guilty. She never made people like pity her. She would always point to God being her strength and, you know, not make the focus be her. Um, so she would just, um, encourage him to go and do the Lord's work. And when he was home, he did spend that quality time with her, instructing her in God's word. And like I said, she wasn't ever alone in the home when he was away. He provided uh, servants and assistants to tend to the home and to Susie's needs as she you know, needed while she was suffering. And one of the servants in their home was actually one of her best friends. So um, we don't have to think back like that. He was like, he felt guilty leaving her, even though she wasn't all alone in the house. So even though she was surrounded by people, you know, he still felt bad. He wanted to be with her and he wanted to disciple her. So onto some of the works she did. Um, one of the most impactful works Susie started and she continued till her last day um, was the book fund, which that's the main thing she's known for um, the book fund and her suffering. Uh, so <laughs> that's, I mean, that's her main thing. I mean, it was huge. It, that's the, everything else stemmed from that book fund though. Yeah. That's how all the other ministries and all the work she did um, started. So her book fund started in, 1875, and she started it in order to minister to poor pastors. And it started because she commented to Charles how she longed for his lectures to be sent out to every minister in England. And then Charles replied, like challenging her, well, you should be the first donor um, to do it. You know, you donate first, get it going. And it says over the next 28 years, she had distributed um, 200,000 books free of charge to needy pastors. Yeah. So this is how we kind of mentioned that a lot of the ways that Charles writings and his influence got spread was because of this, um, this book fund that sent out free books all around England, you know, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's really neat. I'm going to read some of this unless you want to. Well, just... You didn't know where I was going to end. Do you want me to just read? <laughs> I mean... Okay, I was just going to read the vision. Um, Susie's vision for the book fund was that pastors would be helped, churches would be strengthened, and the gospel would go forth with greater zeal than it otherwise would have if pastors were left to scrape together mere crumbs from the few morsels of books that they possessed. And... Just, uh, Susie did not minimize the power of the Bible alone, 
in the hands of a godly minister. However, her heart bled for poor and often uneducated pastors who not only struggled to provide bread for their wives and children, but also found it difficult to manage time and resources to bake spiritual bread for their congregations. These were pious men able to teach, but lacking aid that would assist them to greater strength in their preaching. And says she lamented the financial burdens that so many pastors were forced to carry. She knew that it was difficult for them to focus on their ministries when bills were stacked up and their wives and children needed clothing and medical care. And there's another part in here. Yeah, just her responsibilities. How um, Charles said that God directed my beloved wife to a work which has been to her fruitful, um, inutterable happiness. He believed that the fund supplied my dear suffering companion with a happy work, which has opened channels of consolation for her, imported great interest to the otherwise monotonous life of an invalid. So it was a blessing to her because it was something she could just do from home, but she was also helping Charles, um, you know, further his ministry. Right, but it's such an important ministry. And I mean, it's just as important today as it was then. We obviously just have more access to resources now, but, you know, her heart was basically saying there's so many good godly men that have this ability to preach and a desire to preach but they're poor, right? And they have no ability to sort of cobble together, you know, what we would have now is commentaries and lectures mm -hmm. and yeah. sermon notes. And we've got Logos Bible software. And that's what she's basically was saying is like, these men just need some help to understand and help put together. So mm -hmm. she's essentially just sending out Charles's work as commentaries, as instructional mm -hmm. aids, and, you know, the stuff that we take for granted now, but these old poor pastors in the middle of nowhere, England, right? All they had was a Bible and a desire to preach God's word. So she was like, we can just send them some free books by Charles, who's written so much, and just to help them get going, help them put together yeah. some of their work. And um, we can, well, do you have more that you want to get into on this? We're running pretty long here. But there was a point in there where I think they even point out a letter in that book where a specific pastor or whatever reached out and wanted to partake in the book fund. And she mentioned that, like, you can't because your church is actually doing well enough that I can't yeah. send you the books for free. You know, you're like, you'd have to buy them like anybody else. So, like, yeah. this is strictly for the poor and the needy that we're sending these to. So it was a very, you know, rigid program, but it, it helped was. a lot of pastors. Um continue on in their ministry that they couldn't yeah. afford to otherwise. So a really admirable work. Yeah. Even people would send in books to help and she'd look through them all and she'd be like, if they were weak in their theology, she wouldn't send them out to people. Like she was very picky about the books that she, that she gave pastors. Yeah, that's good. So um, yeah, she started another fund called the Pastors Aid Fund. And, you know, stemming from that, she got to know pastors, like, you know, visiting in their homes and stuff and, you know, just seeing what their life is like. And she'd see, you know, they have hardly anything. She'd see how poor they were. And so that fund, the Pastors Aid Fund, you know, was more about clothing, money and food. So, and she had other ministries started. I don't have to, there's so much she did. No, we, but, yeah. This uh, this short bio started as a quick bio on 
Charles Spurgeon. But it is about her. Like, I have to talk about the things she did. Um, so let me see if I should skip that one. Yeah, that's okay. I'll go on to her next work. So she helped plant a church. She had this desire for a Baptist church to be planted in Bexhill. And she actually knew a pastor who would be willing to shepherd the flock in that area. She hadn't brought it up to him yet, though. She was just like thinking on it. And so she did. She asked him and, you know, he wanted to do it. So she planned the groundwork for it. And, um, you know, this was after uh, Charles had passed away when this was going on. Uh, her and Charles had always been committed to no debt at home or in the church. So she gave all that she could um, to help support the work. And then she just trusted God to provide the rest. And she requested that worldly means be employed to raise, uh, not be, not be employed to raise money. She said there will be no concerts or bazaars or worldly entertainments of any sort to share in the erection of Beulah Baptist Chapel, Bexhill on the Sea. So, yeah, I thought that was really good. And like, we're not looking to the world to raise money. They're not asking anybody else. They're just like, we're going to have no debt. And this is going to be through God's hand only. And um, when I was just going to say one more thing I thought was a good way to end with this um it's a a hymn that someone composed for her when she passed away and there was this um pastor named Pastor Thomas Johnson he was a slave in Virginia and um I think after the civil war he went to England and he, well, his slave owner was always reading and talking about Charles Spurgeon. So that's why, you know, when he left after the Civil War to England, he, he was determined to meet Charles Spurgeon. And he did. Um, so he got to know them, uh, Charles and Susie, really well. So I think this is where they first bring it up, bring him up. I don't know. Maybe he was brought up earlier. But, yeah, I think it was near the end of the book. So I thought, wow, that's a really neat story. So during the whole civil civil war thing, like he um found out that well they um everybody was anti Charles Spurgeon over in this, you know, the United States because he was anti slavery. And so they would have like Spurgeon um oh, what they call it, like book burning and like libraries were doing it and churches and like they hated Charles Spurgeon because he was anti he spoke against it. So I thought, wow, that's a really neat fact to bring up. So this this pastor, you know, he went through um Charles's um uh pastor college. And anyway, this is, you know, he comes back uh for her for her funeral and he wrote this hymn. For her and it's called gone home in memory of our dear mrs charles haddon spurgeon and it says god's promise of covenant love which links us to the home above gone home to live with jesus our prophet priest and king and in his blessed presence redemption's song to sing gone home to live with jesus the ever-loving one 
who left his home in glory that sinners might be one, gone home to live with Jesus to share that heavenly rest, and with her own beloved to be forever blessed. So, no, that's obviously an awesome story about Spurgeon standing against slavery, even in the midst of slavery. Um, Because he did die in 1891, I believe, is when Spurgeon died. Um, So pretty neat there. Do you have any last things that you want to read about Susie? before we yeah. get to our ending and our sermon recommendation. Yeah, um, just the little epilogue. Is that how you say it? <laughs> We're not reading the entire epilogue. <laughs> okay. Um, it says, although Susie's accomplishments were not as mountainous as were her famous husbands, they are significant. On the one hand, we should not cast her in marble and pay any homage to her that is due only to God. After all, she struggled with sin, was fearful at times, and dealt with loneliness. On the other hand, we should give her the honor that is due her name. As we, as she would no doubt agree, we should avoid the sort of entrance that Richard Day gave to her in his biography of Spurgeon. Enter the heroine. But we should nevertheless appreciate her for who she was. And though we can't accomplish the same things in the same ways that Susie did, we can certainly glean principles from her life that are worthy of our consideration and imitation. If Susie Spurgeon remained faithful to God, even beneath the presses of affliction, and instead of complaining, served God, then by God's grace, we can also. And yes, that's how I feel about it. I felt like I gleaned a lot um, from that. <laughs> I want to read it so again. Did the audience. It really moved me to even want to be a better helpmate to Spencer and not complain like i yeah i need to reread it no it's a great story (laughs) um obviously and they were both obviously very faithful um Mm -hmm. very strong believers and i just think yeah i mean they set a great example i mean sadly Susie spurgeon is and you know it makes sense right but she was far less known than charles but her faith was no less um sure and strong in the Lord. And um, she had a massive impact around the world. As we said, a lot of the um, reason we know Spurgeon as well as we do is that, you know, she was the one sending his books all around the world and his, his teachings and stuff. So Mm -hmm. um, they're a great example to set. And we do think they're important people to know. Um, So do you have any last thoughts on Charles or Susie before we get into our sermon recommendation? Well, I just think it's important to, um, you know, we can learn from scripture on, you know, just in light of Susie, um, on how women to serve their husbands and how to serve God. And, but I think she's just a great example, um, more practical, um, just more ways to learn. And just even her, her thoughts and her convictions are yeah, you can relate to. So I would just, yeah. I'd, I'd recommend it to learn um, just more godly behavior, even in, in marriage and um, faithfulness to one another as you work together in ministry or whatever it is, just unto the Lord together. Like that's the work, that's the being a helpmate in that respect is the most 
important. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I thought it was funny because, you know, modern women today may not look too kindly at being called Miss Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you know, but she would call herself that. She loved being called that name. And I think, yeah, if you have a young daughter or even a young son who's looking for a wife, like um, that, she would be a great, um, great person for them to read about and study up on. Um, And then obviously Mm. just both of them as men and women of faith are a great example for us. So before we end this, we do want to give you our sermon recommendation for the week. So we, of course, have to go with uh, Charles Spurgeon. That would only make sense. So the one that I wanted to grab, because I think we have so much lukewarmness in our Christian walk in America today, thought, why don't we hear Charles Spurgeon talk about lukewarmness? And of course, I will say it's not Charles Spurgeon. It's somebody reading his words. So just deal with that. But It's this sermon here, I Will Vomit You Out of My Mouth by Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) Um, So I'm sure it's going to be one of those uh, crude sermons that Susie was so repulsed by as a young lady, (laughs) but I think we'll deal with it and I think it'll be beneficial to us. So anything else before we wrap up this episode? No. (laughs) No, it was a long one, but I think it was important. the short bio turned into a pretty lengthy bio, but there are two important men and or important people, man and woman. And I think we can learn a lot from them. So I hope you guys did. Please let us know who you think we should be um, learning about and who we should be promoting on this show. We want to let people know about these other great men and women of God. So that is all we got. We'll be back on Monday with some devotionals. And then next week, maybe talking about Christian nationalism. We'll see how it goes. That's all we got for you guys. God bless. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.